Section six of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. In February seventeen sixty seven, there happened one of the most remarkable incidents of Johnson's life, which gratified his monarchical enthusiasm and which he loved to relate with all its circumstances when requested by his friends. This was his being honoured by a private conversation with His Majesty in the library at the Queen's House. Footnote. Buckingham House, bought in 1761 by George III and settled on Queen Charlotte. The present Buckingham Palace occupies the site. P. Cunningham. Here, according to Hawkins, Life, page 470, Johnson met the Prince of Wales, George the Fourth, when a child, and inquired as to his knowledge of the scriptures. The Prince, in his answers, gave him great satisfaction. Horace Walpole, writing of the Prince at the age of nineteen, says, Journal of the Reign of George the Third, Nothing was coarser than his conversation and phrases, and it made men smile to find in the palace of piety and pride his royal highness had learnt nothing but the dialect of footmen and grooms End footnote. he had frequently visited those splendid rooms and noble collection of books which he used to say was more numerous and curious than he supposed any person could have made in the time which the king had employed footnote. Dr. Johnson had the honour of contributing his assistance towards the formation of this library, for I have read a long letter from him to Mr. Barnard, giving the most masterly instructions on the subject. I wished much to have gratified my readers with the perusal of this letter, and have reason to think that His Majesty would have been graciously pleased to permit its publication. But Mr. Barnard, to whom I applied, declined it on his own account boswell it is given in mr croker's edition page one nine six and a footnote mr barnard the librarian took care that he should have every accommodation that could contribute to his ease and convenience while indulging his literary taste in that place so that he had there a very agreeable resource at leisure hours his Majesty, having been informed of his occasional visits, was pleased to signify a desire that he should be told when Dr. Johnson came next to the library. Accordingly, the next time that Johnson did come, as soon as he was fairly engaged with a book, on which, while he sat by the fire, he seemed quite intent, Mr. Barnard stole round to the apartment where the king was, and, in obedience to his majesty's commands, mentioned that Dr. Johnson was then in the library. His majesty said he was at leisure and would go to him, upon which Mr. Barnard took one of the candles that stood on the king's table, and lighted his majesty through a suite of rooms till they came to a private door into the library of which his majesty had the key being entered mr barnard stepped forward hastily to dr johnson who was still in a profound study and whispered him sir 
here is the king johnson started up and stood still his majesty approached him and at once was courteously easy Footnote. the particulars of this conversation i have been at great pains to collect with the utmost authenticity from dr johnson's own detail to myself from mr langton who was present when he gave an account of it to dr joseph wharton and several other friends at sir joshua reynolds's from mr barnard from a copy of a letter written by the late mr strawn the printer to bishop warburton and from a minute the original of which is among the papers of the late sir james caldwell and a copy of which was most obligingly obtained for me from his son sir john caldwell by sir francis lum to all these gentlemen i beg leave to make my grateful acknowledgments and particularly to sir francis lum who was pleased to take a great deal of trouble and even had the minute laid before the king by lord Carmarthen, now duke of leeds then one of his majesty's principal secretaries of state who announced to sir francis the royal pleasure concerning it by a letter in these words i have the king's commands to assure you sir how sensible his majesty is of your attention in communicating the minute of the conversation previous to its publication as there appears no objection to your complying with mr boswell's wishes on the subject you are at full liberty to deliver it to that gentleman to make such use of it in his life of johnson as he may think proper boswell in seventeen ninety boswell published in a quarto sheet of eight pages a conversation between his most sacred majesty george the third and samuel johnson l l d illustrated with observations by james boswell esq london printed by henry baldwin for charles dilly in the poultry seventeen ninety price half a guinea entered in the hall book of the company of stationers it is of the same impression as the first edition of the life of johnson End of footnote. his majesty began by observing that he understood he came sometimes to the library and then mentioning his having heard that the doctor had been lately at oxford footnote after michaelmas seventeen sixty six and a footnote asked him if he was not fond of going thither to which johnson answered that he was indeed fond of going to oxford sometimes but was likewise glad to come back again the king then asked him what they were doing at oxford johnson answered he could not much commend their diligence but that in some respects they were mended for they had put their press under better regulations and were at that time printing polybius he was then asked whether there were better libraries at oxford or cambridge he answered he believed the bodleian was larger than any they had at cambridge at the same time adding i hope whether we have more books or not than they have at cambridge we shall make as good use of them as they do being asked whether all souls or christchurch library was the largest he answered all souls library is the largest we have except the bodleian ay said the king that is the public library 
His Majesty inquired if he was then writing anything. He answered he was not, for he had pretty well told the world what he knew, and must now read to acquire more knowledge. The king, as it should seem with a view to urge him to rely on his own stores as an original writer, and to continue his labours, then said, I do not think you borrow much from anybody. Footnote. Boswell and Goldsmith had in like manner urged him to continue his labours. End of footnote. Johnson said he thought he had already done his part as a writer. I should have thought so too, said the king, if you had not written so well. Johnson observed to me upon this that no man could have paid a handsomer compliment, and it was fit for a king to pay. It was decisive. When asked by another friend at Sir Joshua Reynolds's whether he had made any reply to this high compliment, he answered, No, sir. When the king had said it, it was to be so. It was not for me to bandy civilities with my sovereign. Footnote. Johnson had written to Lord Chesterfield in the plan of his dictionary, works volume 5, page 19, Orsonius thought that modesty forbade him to plead inability for a task to which Caesar had judged him equal. Curme posse negem posse putat. We may compare also a passage in Madame D'Arblay's diary. The King I believe there is no constraint to be put upon real genius. Nothing but inclination can set it to work. Miss Burney, however, knows best. And then hastily returning to me, he cried, What? What? No, sir, I believe not, certainly, quoth I very awkwardly, for I seem taking a violent compliment only as my due. But I knew not how to put him off as I would another person. End of footnote. Perhaps no man who had spent his whole life in courts could have shown a more nice and dignified sense of true politeness than Johnson did in this instance. His Majesty, having observed to him that he supposed he must have read a great deal, Johnson answered that he thought more than he read. Footnote. In one part of the character of Pope, Works, volume 8, page 319, Johnson seems to be describing himself. He certainly was in his early life a man of great literary curiosity, and when he wrote his essay on criticism had, for his age, a very wide acquaintance with books. When he entered into the living world, it seems to have happened to him as to many others, that he was less attentive to dead masters. He studied in the Academy of Paracelsus and made the universe his favourite volume. His frequent references to history, his allusions to various kinds of knowledge, and his images selected from art and nature, with his observations on the operations of the mind and the modes of life, show an intelligence perpetually on the wing, excursive, vigorous and diligent, eager to pursue knowledge and attentive to retain it. End of footnote.
Johnson answered that he thought more than he read, that he had read a great deal in the early part of his life, but having fallen into ill health, he had not been able to read much compared with others. For instance, he said, he had not read much compared with Dr. Warburton. Footnote. Johnson thus describes Warburton, Works, Volume 8, page 288. About this time, in square bracket 1732, Warburton began to make his appearance in the first ranks of learning. He was a man of vigorous faculties, a mind fervid and vehement, supplied by incessant and unlimited inquiry, with wonderful extent and variety of knowledge. Craddock, Memoirs, Volume 1, page 188, says that Bishop Hurd always wondered where it was possible for Warburton to meet with certain anecdotes, with which not only his conversation, but likewise his writings, abounded. I could have readily informed him, said Mrs. Warburton, for when we passed our winters in London, he would often, after his long and severe studies, send out for a whole basketful of books from the circulating libraries, and at times I have gone into his study and found him laughing, though alone. Lord Macaulay was in this respect the Warburton of our age. End of footnote. He had not read much compared with Dr. Warburton, upon which the king said that he heard Dr. Warburton was a man of such general knowledge that you could scarce talk with him on any subject on which he was not qualified to speak, and that his learning resembled Garrick's acting in its universality. Footnote. The Reverend Mr. Strawn clearly recollects having been told by Johnson that the king observed that Pope made Warburton a bishop. True, sir, said Johnson, but Warburton did more for Pope. He made him a Christian, alluding, no doubt, to his ingenious comments on the essay on man, Boswell. The statements both of the King and Johnson are supported by two passages in Johnson's Life of Pope, Works, Volume 8, pages 289-290. He says of Warburton's comments, Pope, who probably began to doubt the tendency of his own work, was glad that the positions of which he perceived himself not to know the full meaning could by any mode of interpretation be made to mean well. From this time Pope lived in the closest intimacy with his commentator and amply rewarded his kindness and his zeal, for he introduced him to Mr. Murray, by whose interest he became preacher at Lincoln's Inn, and to Mr. Allen, who gave him his niece and his estate, and by consequence, a bishopric. See also the account given by Johnson in Boswell's Hebrides, August the 21st, 1773. Bishop Law, in his revised preface to Archbishop King's Origin of Evil, writes, I had now the satisfaction of seeing that those very principles which have been maintained by Archbishop King were adopted by Mr. Pope in his Essay on Man. This I used to recollect and sometimes relate with pleasure, conceiving that such an account did no less honour to the poet than to our philosopher. 
but was soon made to understand that anything of that kind was taken highly amiss by one in square brackets warburton who had once held the doctrine of that same essay to be rank atheism but afterwards turned a warm advocate for it and thought proper to deny the account above mentioned with heavy menaces against those who presumed to insinuate that pope borrowed anything from any man whatsoever see post october the tenth seventeen seventy nine end of footnote his majesty then talked of the controversy between warburton and louth which he seemed to have read and asked johnson what he thought of it johnson answered warburton has most general most scholastic learning louth is the more correct scholar i do not know which of them calls names best the king was pleased to say he was of the same opinion adding you do not think then dr johnson that there was much argument in the case johnson said he did not think there was Footnote. in gibbon's memoirs a fine passage is quoted from loud's defence of the university of oxford against warburton's reproaches i transcribe with pleasure this eloquent passage writes gibbon without inquiring whether in this angry controversy the spirit of louth himself is purified from the intolerant zeal which warburton ascribed to the genius of the place gibbon's miscellaneous works see boswell's hebrides august the twenty eighth seventeen seventy three and a footnote why truly said the king when once it comes to calling names argument is pretty well at an end his majesty then asked him what he thought of lord biddleton's history which was then just published footnote see post april the fifteenth seventeen seventy three where johnson says that littleton in his history wrote the most vulgar whiggism and april the tenth seventeen seventy six gibbon who had reviewed it this year says in his memoirs the public has ratified my judgment of that voluminous work in which sense and learning are not illuminated by a ray of genius End of footnote. johnson said he thought his style pretty good but that he had blamed henry the second rather too much why said the king they seldom do these things by halves no sir answered johnson not to kings but fearing to be misunderstood he proceeded to explain himself and immediately subjoined that for those who spoke worse of kings than they deserved he could find no excuse but that he could more easily conceive how some might speak better of them than they deserved without any ill intention for as kings had much in their power to give those who were favoured by them would frequently from gratitude exaggerate their praises and as this proceeded from a good motive it was certainly excusable as far as error could be excusable the king then asked him what he thought of dr hill footnote hawkins says of him life page two eleven 
he obtained from one of those universities which would scarce refuse a degree to an apothecary's horse a diploma for that of doctor of physic he became a great compiler and in one year earned fifteen hundred pounds in the end he turned quack doctor he was knighted by the king of sweden in return for a present to that monarch of his vegetable system he at least thrice attacked garrick murphy's garrick who replied with three epigrams of which the last is well known for farces and physic his equal less guesses his farces are physic his physic of farces horace walpole letters writing on january the third seventeen sixty one said would you believe what i know is fact the dr hill earned fifteen guineas a week by working for wholesale dealers he was at once employed on six voluminous works of botany husbandry etc published weekly churchill in the rescind thus writes of him who could so nobly grace the motley list actor inspector doctor botanist knows any one so well sure no one knows at once to play prescribe compound compose churchill's poems in the gentleman's magazine volume twenty two it is stated that he acted pantomime tragedy and comedy and had been damned in all End of footnote the king then asked him what he thought of dr hill johnson answered that he was an ingenious man but had no veracity and immediately mentioned as an instance of it an assertion of that writer that he had seen objects magnified to a much greater degree by using three or four microscopes at a time than by using one now added johnson every one acquainted with microscopes knows that the more of them he looks through the less the object will appear why replied the king this is not only telling an untruth but telling it clumsily for if that be the case every one who can look through a microscope will be able to detect him Footnote. mr croker quotes bishop ellrington who says dr johnson was unjust to hill and showed that he did not understand the subject croker's boswell page one eight six end of footnote i now said johnson to his friends when relating what had passed began to consider that i was depreciating this man in the estimation of his sovereign and thought it was time for me to say something that might be more favourable he added therefore that dr hill was notwithstanding a very curious observer and if he would have been contented to tell the world no more than he knew he might have been a very considerable man and needed not to have recourse to such mean expedients to raise his reputation footnote disraeli curiosities of literature says that Hill, once when he fell sick, owned to a friend that he had over-fatigued himself with writing seven works at once, 
one of which was on architecture and another on cookery. Disraeli adds that Hill contracted to translate a Dutch work on insects for fifty guineas. As he was ignorant of the language, he bargained with another translator for twenty-five guineas. This man, who was equally ignorant, re-bargained with a third, who perfectly understood the original, for twelve guineas. End of footnote. The king then talked of literary journals, mentioned particularly the Journal des Savants, and asked Johnson if it was well done. Johnson said it was formerly very well done, and gave some account of the persons who began it, and carried it on for some years, enlarging at the same time on the nature and use of such works. The king asked him if it was well done now. Johnson answered that he had no reason to think that it was. Footnote. Gibbon miscellaneous works, writing on December the 20th, 1763, at the Journal des Savants, says, I can hardly express how much I am delighted with this journal. Its characteristics are erudition, precision, and taste. The father of all the rest, it is still their superior. There is nothing to be wished for in it but a little more boldness and philosophy, but it is published under the Chancellor's eye. End of footnote. The king then asked him if there were any other literary journals published in this kingdom, except the monthly and critical reviews. Footnote. Goldsmith, in his present state of polite learning, published in 1759, says, We have two literary reviews in London, with critical newspapers and magazines without number. The compilers of these resemble the commoners of Rome. They are all for levelling property, not by increasing their own, but by diminishing that of others. The most diminutive son of fame or of famine has his we and his us, his firstlies and his secondlies, as methodical as if bound in cowhide and clothed with clasps of brass. Were these monthly reviews and magazines frothy, pert, or absurd, they might find some pardon. But to be dull and dronish is an encroachment on the prerogative of a folio. In the footnote. And on being answered, there were no other, His Majesty asked which of them was the best. Johnson answered that the monthly review was done with most care, the critical upon the best principles, adding that the authors of the monthly review were enemies to the church. Footnote. See post April the tenth, seventeen sixty six. End of footnote. This the king said he was sorry to hear. The conversation next turned on the philosophical transactions when Johnson observed that they had now a better method of arranging their materials than formerly. Aye, said the king, they are obliged to Dr. Johnson for that. For his majesty had heard and remembered the circumstance which Johnson himself had forgot. Footnote. 
Mr. White, the librarian of the Royal Society, has at my request kindly examined the records of the Royal Society, but has not been able to discover what the circumstance was. Neither is any light thrown on it by Johnson's reviews of Birch's History of the Royal Society and Philosophical Transactions, Volume 49, which I have examined. End of footnote. His Majesty expressed a desire to have the literary biography of this country ably executed, and proposed to Dr. Johnson to undertake it. Johnson signified his readiness to comply with His Majesty's wishes. During the whole of this interview, Johnson talked to His Majesty with profound respect, but still in his firm, manly manner, with a sonorous voice, and never in that subdued tone which is commonly used at the levee and in the drawing-room. Were you to converse with a king, you ought to be as easy and unembarrassed as with your own valet de chambre, but yet every look, word and action should imply the utmost respect. What would be proper and well-bred with others much your superior, would be absurd and ill-bred with one so very much so. Chesterfield's Letters, end of footnote. After the King withdrew, Johnson showed himself highly pleased with His Majesty's conversation and gracious behaviour. He said to Mr. Barnard, Sir, they may talk of the King as they will, but he is the finest gentleman I have ever seen. Footnote. Imlac thus described to Rasselas his interview with the great mogul. The emperor asked me many questions concerning my country and my travels, and though I cannot now recollect anything that he uttered above the power of a common man, he dismissed me astonished at his wisdom and enamoured of his goodness. Rasselas, chapter 9. Raxall, Memoirs, says that Johnson was no judge of a fine gentleman. George the Third, he adds, was altogether destitute of these ornamental and adventitious endowments. He mentions the oscillations of his body, the precipitation of his questions, none of which, it was said, would wait for an answer, and the hurry of his articulation. Mr. Wheatley, in a note on this passage, quotes the opinion of Adams, the American envoy, who said, The king is, I really think, the most accomplished courtier in his dominions. End of footnote. And he afterwards observed to Mr. Langton, Sir, his manners are those of as fine a gentleman as we may suppose Louis the Fourteenth, or Charles the Second. At Sir Joshua Reynolds's, where a circle of Johnson's friends was collected round him to hear his account of this memorable conversation, Dr. Joseph Wharton, in his frank and lively manner, footnote. Dr. Wharton made me the most obsequious bow. Here's what Dr. Johnson calls a rapturist, and I saw plainly he meant to pour forth much civility into my ears. He is a very communicative, gay, and pleasant converser, and enlivened the whole day by his readiness upon all subjects. 
Madame D'Arblay's diary. It is very likely that he is the ingenious writer mentioned post-1780 in Mr. Langton's collection, of whom Johnson said, Sir, he is an enthusiast by rule. Mr. Wyndham records that Johnson, speaking of Wharton's admiration of fine passages, said, His taste is amazement, misprinted amusement. Wyndham's diary. In her Memoirs of Dr. Burney, Madame D'Arblay says that Johnson, at times when in gay spirits, would take off Dr. Wharton with the strongest humour, describing almost convulsively the ecstasy with which he would seize upon the person nearest to him to hug in his arms, lest his grasp should be eluded while he displayed some picture or some prospect. In that humorous piece, Probationary Odes for the Laureateship, Dr. Joseph is made to hug his brother in his arms when he sees him descend safely from the balloon in which he had composed his ode. Thomas Wharton is described in the same piece as a little thick, squat, red-faced man. There was for some time a coolness between Johnson and Dr. Wharton. Wharton, writing on January the 22nd, 1766, says, I only dined with Johnson, who seemed cold and indifferent, and scarce said anything to me. Perhaps he has heard what I said of his Shakespeare, or rather was offended at what I wrote to him. As he pleases, Wool's Wharton. Wool says that a dispute took place between the two men at Reynolds's house. One of the company overheard the following conclusion of the dispute. Johnson. Sir, I have not used to be contradicted. Wharton. Better for yourself and friends, sir, if you were. Our admiration could not be increased, but our love might. In the footnote. Dr. Joseph Wharton, in his frank and lively manner, was very active in pressing him to mention the particulars. Come now, sir, this is an interesting matter. Do favour us with it. Johnson, with great good humour, complied. He told them. I found His Majesty wished I should talk, and I made it my business to talk. I find it does a man good to be talked to by his sovereign. In the first place, a man cannot be in a passion. Here some question interrupted him, which is to be regretted, as he certainly would have pointed out and illustrated many circumstances of advantage from being in a situation where the powers of the mind are at once excited to vigorous exertion and tempered by reverential awe. During all the time in which Dr. Johnson was employed in relating to the circle at Sir Joshua Reynolds's the particulars of what passed between the king and him, Dr. Goldsmith remained unmoved upon a sofa at some distance, affecting not to join in the least in the eager curiosity of the company. He assigned as a reason for his gloom and seeming inattention that he apprehended Johnson had relinquished his purpose of furnishing him with a prologue to his play. 
footnote, the good-natured man, end footnote, with the hopes of which he had been flattered, but it was strongly suspected that he was fretting with chagrin and envy at the singular honour Dr. Johnson had lately enjoyed. At length the frankness and simplicity of his natural character prevailed. He sprung from the sofa, advanced to Johnson, and in a kind of flutter, from imagining himself in the situation which he had just been hearing described, exclaimed, well, you acquitted yourself in this conversation better than I should have done, for I should have bowed and stammered through the whole of it. Footnote. It has been said that the King only sought one interview with Dr. Johnson. There was nothing to complain of. It was a compliment paid by rank to letters, and once was enough. The King was more afraid of this interview than Dr. Johnson was, and went to it as a schoolboy to his task. But he did not want to have the trial repeated every day, nor was it necessary. The very jealousy of his self-love marked his respect, and if he thought the less of Dr. Johnson, he would have been more willing to risk the encounter. Hazlitt's Conversations of Northcote it should seem that Johnson had a second interview with the King thirteen years later. In 1780, Hannah Moore records, memoirs, Johnson told me he had been with the King that morning, who enjoined him to add Spencer to his Lives of the Poets. It is strange that, so far as I know, this interview is not mentioned by anyone else. It is perhaps alluded to, post-December 1784, when Mr. Nichols told Johnson that he wished he would gratify his sovereign by a life of Spencer. End of section 6